0: Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling,
1: and I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore njwatson.
0: And on this month's Paper Scripts, we'll be answering your TV writing questions about character arcs and animated script lengths. Plus, we'll be talking about the new board game documentary Game Master with its director Charles Mraz, and the latest TV writing news, notably writers' mutiny in the uh, writers' room and the Warner Media restructure. So let's get started. <music>
1: First up, we have some Paper Team podcast news. As we may have mentioned a little while back, we are planning an online mixer. We now have some more details for that. It will be in early October, probably the first weekend of October, October 3rd, most likely. Uh, We'll be doing that online in some capacity, perhaps over Zoom, still figuring out all the details, but we just wanted to let you know to save the date for that mixer on October 3rd.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we've wanted to do a mixer for a while now. Obviously, we had one at the top of the year and last year, but because of COVID, etc., we were not able to do another one in the second half of this year. So we were thought, you know, why not just do an online thing? And we're still figuring out the details, as Nick mentioned. So tune in for that in early October. But in the meantime, we have a bunch of uh, shout outs and emails that we received. And the first one comes from Jack Furman, who thanked us for our feedback from the D session on his uh, teaser and he says hi Alex and Nick I just listened to this morning's episode and I wanted to thank you both so much for giving my piece a read and your thoughts that teaser has already been scrapped and I've done a major overhaul of the pilot scrapping the documentary angle and changing the co-protagonist's very unfortunate name I'm a tremendous fan and I've learned so much from listening to you guys keep on making great work and stay well very best Jack
1: Yeah. Thank you, Jack. We're always uh, happy to provide useful feedback on people's teasers. And I'm glad that you're diving back in and making your script the best it can be.
0: And also in terms of a shout out or a comment, the podcast is on many platforms. And I discovered recently that we are on a platform called Podbean. Have you ever heard of Podbean, Nick?
1: Uh, sounds familiar. Vaguely.
0: <laughs> sure. So Podbean, I guess, is a, a podcast about beans. No, it's a platform uh, for podcasts. And we actually got comments. It's not just iTunes. It's also on other platforms where people comment on our episodes on Paper Team. And so someone commented on our PT 182 episode, which was all about TV staffing versus TV tv selling and they just said love the episode so much jewels on it thank you so much so thank you to whoever
1: a mysterious anonymous person commenting on this episode on the of all places <laughs> and we also had some shout outs on twitter uh, a lot of people often ask the question on twitter what podcast they should be listening to and luckily we have some awesome dedicated listeners who like to shout us out there so the first one here is a question from ken h who said what's your favorite screenwriting podcast on itunes you like to listen to and so one of our listeners, Jenny Fumarolo said, I also like paper team with TV calling and NJ Watson happier in Hollywood with Elizabeth Craft and Sarah Fain and to live in dialogue in LA with Aaron Tracy. I've got a lot in the queue. So thank you for the shout out Jenny. And those are some other really good podcasts too that you mentioned.
0: And uh, the next one was from a script who also asked about this podcast and Erica Land uh, mentioned uh, that Paper Team is a great place. And in fact, someone else in that thread mentioned Paper Team and someone responded, I'm adding Paper Team to my queue just because that name is awesome.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the reply on that thread from our good friend of the podcast, Hilliard guest from Screenwriters Rant Room said, uh, don't forget on the page, Paper Team, Script Notes, W.J. West, The Business, Catch a Break, Children of Tendu, Happier in Hollywood, Wordy Girl and all the others so thank you for that awesome list that included us hilliard
0: and also we had rachel ronchich who answered another thread uh, saying that paper team with tv calling and nj watson is an amazing podcast especially love their now three-part series on how to write a tv pilot in case you missed it we released our tv pilot theory one a couple of weeks ago so check that episode out
1: Another quick shout out was from Yelena War, who said, uh, my Twitter friends are all over writer Podcast this week. Really Mighty's tweet was mentioned on Paper Team and Carpet is Lava made the outro for Script Notes. And so that was uh, Really Mighty is Miles Warden. And he said, oh, snap, love Paper Team. Gotta listen to ASAP. Thanks for the heads up. And then followed it up by saying, whoa, it kicked off the podcast. Nice. Thanks, NJ Watson and TV Calling for the shout out. Well, thank you, Miles.
0: And yeah, now you got a shout out about the shout out.
1: Exactly. We'll make an infinite shout out loop. <laughs> All right. And lastly, we had uh, a tweet from Nakia Stevens uh, at screenwrite her, and she said, "Catching up on the latest Paper Team podcast episode and yes to Hilliard Guess, Wright, Sams, Wright, and Michelle Amore for so eloquently speaking on being black writers in Hollywood. I also appreciate that y'all pulled up with facts, statistics, examples and receipts." And then she quoted a line from the podcast which said, "We know it takes a lot of time and emotional energy to keep having to re-explain your own oppression to everybody every time." and she said phew thank you for acknowledging that your outro and holding space TV calling NJ Watson uh, yeah it was really important to us to be able to give a platform to those voices so thank you guys for being on there and uh, thank you for listening
0: and if you want to listen to that particular episode that's PT 181 where we spoke with the whole WGA West the committee of Black Riders chairs uh, it was a fantastic episode so definitely recommend that one and as always we really appreciate all those shout outs all the Patreon supporters everyone who is making this podcast feasible for us to do week after week so thank you as always all right now let's get into your tv writing questions and the first one comes from evan jones who sent us an email saying hi i've been learning a lot about character arcs and i've been taught that they come from the lie the characters believe and the thing they want and the thing they need does this apply to tv as well
1: if so would i plan the arc over season
0: or until the show is finished
1: thank you yeah, that's a good question. Um, the answer is yes, that definitely applies to TV as well. There are a number of different ways that you can approach kind of plotting your character arcs, and there are a number of different tools like that one that you just mentioned that can be helpful in that. There's no one right way to do it. Another one that I've heard of and used recently was sort of coming at it from the perspective of characters having three selves one of them is kind of their broken self and what their wound is and what makes them incomplete the other one is their kind of projected self which is what they're putting out into the world and like the mask that they're putting on for people and then the other one is their true self and that's kind of like where they need to get to and want to be deep down so yeah essentially to answer your question about the scope of it you would want to have a character arc on a seasonal level usually and then also on an entire series level and it's probably going to be fractal and reflective of its own arc and you're hitting different milestones and steps building to that that whole thing so yeah
0: yeah, I definitely agree. Uh, I will also say, I mean, just to go back for a second to that pilot episode that I mentioned before, that was an episode where we talked about that fractal angle that an episode represents, uh, how you know it's sort of like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. And the same does hold true with the scope of a character arc, like uh, Nicky just mentioned. Within an episode, that character needs to go through their own journey in the same way that they're going to go through their own journey over the season and uh, for the macro series. Now, when you're running a pilot, uh, especially a spec pilot and so forth, or an episode. I, I don't believe you necessarily need to know the sort of the very big details of how that character is going to evolve every single season or until the show is finished. But I do feel that it is important to have a general a sort of roadmap or idea of where you want that character to be headed to so that you can service sort of like a 1% version of that and distill it in that episode. So an example would be Breaking Bad and uh, Vince Gilligan pitched Breaking Bad as Mr. Chips becomes Scarface. And so obviously that means when he Pitched that show, he knew where the character would end up. However, he didn't necessarily know the details of how the character would evolve to Scarface in the, you know, in very granular detail. He just sort of knew the broad strokes of this is where a character starts at point A and this is where the character ends at point Z. And in the pilot of Breaking Bad, you can definitely see that transition happening in its very intimate level from you know the beginning of the episode until the end with the scene with his wife uh, in bed. And so that's an example where you can show Uh, a character evolving in sort of an episode while still servicing or at least hinting at what the bigger picture will be. On that note, I also feel like that does address the early comment. uh, Like uh, Nick mentioned some other examples, but personally, I do like the idea of looking at what the character wants versus what they need and sort of contrasting those elements, especially if it's some type of ensemble show or if it's uh, obviously if it's a TV show, there's more than one character or more than one lead. Presumably, I'm a big believer in that element of gradation where you can have one character reflecting on the other and mirroring those wants and needs and ultimately that's what sort of what the character will want versus what they need you know sort of a a different approach based on who i want to feature in a particular episode or particular storyline and that way when we cut from story a to story b to story c we sort of go for different things as opposed to just the one thing throughout
1: Yeah. I think when you dig into the characters and you look at their wants and needs, the other important thing to all of that is just making sure that there are obstacles within themselves to those goals. You know, if a character wants something, then it's something that's bad for them ultimately and isn't where they need to be. And that's going to kind of be an obstacle to the thing that they actually need, or might even be the opposite to the thing that they need. So the entire kind of arc of the season or the show or whatever is them learning that they don't want what they think they want and to accept uh, what it is that they need. But, you know, your, the conflict there is always going to be the obstacles that we throw in front of that from those characters and that come from within themselves as well both the internal and external
0: it's sort of what uh, Evan mentioned in terms of the lie we tell ourselves or the character believes. Uh, again, it's sort of a reflection of who we are as people. We are very subjective beings. We think we know what's right and what's wrong, and usually that causes our doom. I mean, maybe not in real life, but at least uh, figuratively speaking, in sort of a storyline, that should be the idea of uh, especially in a tragedy or something like that where what we think is right where what we are pursuing is actually our doom at the end of the day. And so So that's another version of that, where we're putting obstacles in front of ourselves. Now, that's obviously hard to really be prescriptive about, oh, what does that look like, practically speaking, because everybody's uh, characters and stories are going to be different. But that's a really interesting point that uh, you mentioned. And I feel like that also ties back to another sort of common refrain that people sort of misunderstand, which is the whole like, write what you know, which we covered in previous episodes. But the short version of that is that write what you know doesn't mean write what I I know how to cook or bake, and so I'm only going to be able to write a show about a chef or a baker. It just means write what you know emotionally, write what you know about your experiences, and write what you know about your subjective experience as a person. And so I feel like those elements can inform your decision in regards to your character arcs and the way you approach those narratives as well.
1: Another important distinction between character arcs over a feature film and character arcs over a television series is that usually, you know, in the same way as as the story structure, a feature film has a very defined beginning and an end point. And once it's done, the kind of story is closed and we feel this real sense of resolution. Same with the character arc, a person has changed uh, irrevocably in some way, and they're now a different person and they're better for it or worse or whatever it happens to be. In TV, you're kind of always in this back and forth and this push and pull between these two places. And usually you never want to actually fully resolve that character arc or if you do then it starts a new arc in a different way because you want that to be an ongoing part of your story and if your characters change completely then your show is kind of different or over
0: I will say personally, this is obviously a personal preference, but uh, for drama in one hours, I am much more in favor of burning through story and going through those character changes and evolutions because now, I mean, audiences are well versed in you know serialized storytelling and all those different shows that are able to satisfy that heavily serialized narratives that goes hand in hand with the character evolving as opposed to being static. So I definitely agree that especially with half hours and so forth, that's constant balance. But for one hour, I, or at least the dramas, generally speaking, I'm definitely on the side of you want to resolve some sort of element of that character's journey without necessarily answering, you know, the whole dilemma of the character. Again, like the, for the Breaking Bad example, he doesn't become Scarface at the end of the pilot or even the end of the first season. You just see that seed and the seed just grows and grows and grows until five seasons later, he's gone, you know, full Heisenberg.
1: All right, and on that note, we wanted to highlight a podcast that we thought our listeners might be interested in. How does an opera singer learn a new role? How does an actress find the perfect accent for her character? What does the director of a TV drama do all day? Those are the questions that Ruman Alam, Isaac Butler, and June Thomas put to creative people every week on working. Learn how writers outline novels, how composers get jobs and get paid, and how YouTube creators learn to look into the camera lens. Listen to Working from Slate every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Excellent. Uh, definitely listen to working. And now let's
0: move on to our second question of the month. And that comes from Ben Gowitz, who says Hi, guys. I stumbled across the podcast and website and I'm digging it. Keep up the good work. I was wondering if you could help me out with a quick question. Are you familiar with page ranges for 30 minute animated script? I found a very conflicting amounts on various sites. Obviously each show is different and some might be double spaced, but I was hoping you could help with a general rule of thumb for a range. Thank you, Ben.
1: Well, yes, Ben, I am very familiar with (laughs) the page length for 30 minute animated (laughs) scripts, having worked on a few of those shows. So for the most part, it's gonna be the same as your half hour live action single cam comedy which is 30 pages uh can go up to you know a couple over 32 33 maybe up to 35 that's about the max but you're right there are definitely some that use different formatting conventions you're probably looking at something like the simpsons which actually uses double spaced dialogue and that Ends up being closer to 40, 45, even 50 pages, sometimes closer to sort of like a multi cam sitcom length uh, where everything's double spaced. So uh, those are really the two main formats that you'll find. But for the most part, I'd find that half hour animated shows are written exactly the same as live action single cam comedies, which is the 30 page length.
0: And on that note, if you want to send us your own TV running questions, you can always do so at ask at paperteam.co and we will be answering them on this very podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, usually we go straight into TV writing news, but on this month, before we do that, we wanted to actually talk and highlight a brand new documentary called Game Master that is produced by our good friend Jimmy Nguyen, who we had on the podcast way back when on PT32, and is also directed by Charles Mraz. And so we decided to talk with his director, Charles. So let's get Charles on the line right now. All right. Hi,
1: Charles. Welcome.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. So what is Game Master about?
2: Game Master is about the board game industry. You know, it's a $3 billion industry. And some people are like, yeah, duh. And some people hearing that would be like, what? Really? It is? But yeah, it is. It's about the industry as a whole. The end point is through four designers who are just getting started, trying to get their idea from their mind to the tabletop, to the shelves at Target, or at least to a convention on a table. For people to play, and so we talked to them. We followed their journey, and we talked to a lot of people who've been in the business for many, many years.
1: Can you tell us more about Game Master? How did you get involved in the project in the first place?
2: Well, you know, do the, the question is, do you want the short version or the long version? Because <laughs> <laughs> the long <laughs> version starts many years ago. I, I, I'll give you somewhere in between. So, I was a fan of hobby games when I lived in Minneapolis uh, before I moved to Los Angeles, and you know, got together with a game group, and then. You know, left them behind, took all my games with me, met new friends in Los Angeles. After a while, I've, I remember that I had a bunch of games in my closet. We pulled them out, started playing. One of those friends was a producer on the movie, Jimmy Nguyen. Jimmy had actually made two documentaries prior. And this whole thing, like, you know, we just started playing more and more games. We got really into it. We were leaving parties early to go play games, you know, because who wants to be around people? So. After a while, we started going to conventions and just getting more and more and further into the hobby. And then at one of these conventions, we saw a guy sell a game that he designed and published and made himself and, you know, not going through any distributor. It's like he's selling, you know, CDs out of the back of his car of his new album. He's selling this game that he made himself. And we we just kind of said, maybe there's something here. And... You know Jimmy, who had produced two documentaries prior. He's like, "We we should do something with this," and I was like, "I mean, let's do it." He did showrunners. They did another documentary called Barista. He was a producer on both of those. So you know, he said, "This is the next one. Let's do it." And I just said, "Yeah,
0: excellent." And on that note, how long was that process of making the documentary from start to finish?
2: So from the time that we started shooting up until release, it was about four years. I think the bulk of the shooting, I want to say probably about like 80% of the shooting 70, 80 happened over like a year, year and a half. But then, you know, as you edit, you find out like the 10, 20% that you're missing, you go and you do reshoots and because it's a documentary, other things develop. Like one of the stories actually things kept happening. So we kept going back to him. Uh, it was Charlie Bank, more and more stuff just kept happening. And it's amazing that, you know, it's almost like It seems very planned, like, oh, this is the stopping point. But we thought that the stopping point happened a couple times before that one. And, you know, it just got to the end of the documentary. And we're like, no, no, this this is the stopping point. This is the real stopping point. It was amazing how things kept happening with him. And that's another reason the documentaries, you know, should take a while is because for you to document them, things have to happen. You have to let life happen.
1: So how did you decide uh, the stories and the game creators that you were going to follow in the doc?
2: So we went to a lot of those conventions, you know, once I always say, how do you get started? You get asked that question. And the answer is you go to where the people are who are doing the thing that you want to talk about. And then you start talking to people. When we found somebody who had a game that they made themselves, I'd always ask them two questions. One was, tell me about your game. And the second one was, why did you make this? And if you had a compelling answer for the second question, or an interesting answer, or at the very least a personal answer, the conversation went further. I, I usually got you know a phone number and they're there trying to do their job. They're there trying to, to talk about their game. They don't have time for me at that moment. But at a later date, I would talk to all of these people and hear more about them. And we picked, I don't know, I don't remember how many we started with, but a very short amount of time happened before it was very clear These are the people that we should go with. These people have the most compelling stories. These people are the best on camera. And also, and most importantly, I should say, actually, all of their stories kind of worked together and complemented each other. Because, you know, there was one or two that just didn't have a place in the movie, unfortunately. It wasn't even about them. It was more about everything else.
0: And uh, did the stories evolve as you were making the documentary, especially in terms of, you know, obviously there's real life events that are happening. So how do you adapt uh, in terms of the stories?
2: You know, as far as like structure goes and like how you choose what's going to be on screen and what's not, I always say you have to kind of make an outline and you kind of have to marry yourself to an outline and you go out and you try to get what's on paper, and you're not going to get it because other things are going to happen. But then after you go out once or twice, you realize you know not what's in theory on paper, but what tangible things you have for real that you have in the can. And then you rip up your old outline, and you make a new one. And you do that, like I don't know, 50 times throughout the whole process. But it's important, even though you know you're probably going to rip up the first document, all the way up to like the second to last document it's important to act like you're married to the document to have a direction of where you're going when you get out into the field, because even if you're wrong, you're still headed in the direction and you can make adjustments, you know, veer a little bit to the left, veer a little bit to the right. And the opposite of that is going into it and just seeing what happens. That's like having no plan, you know? And if you have no plan rather than headed towards something, you're going to find yourself kind of just running around in circles. And I I find that when you do that, the footage that you come back with and the material that you come back with, is just, it's not going to be as pointed. The content is not going to be substantial. It's going to look like someone running around in circles without
1: a plan. And why should people watch Game Master? What makes it special?
2: In my completely unbiased opinion, it is the best board game documentary out there. Well, but but really though, you know, it, there's not a lot of board game documentaries out there. I think ours is great. But most importantly, I think it's not just a board game documentary, it's a great documentary. I think that if you are not interested in the hobby, it's at the very least an enjoyable watch because it's about people, it's about relationships, and it's about creating something from scratch with your own hands, you know, in your proverbial garage, you know, and People can relate to a lot of other things that have nothing to do with board games with this movie. And so it's going to be an enjoyable watch. So if you if you're, if you you love board games, great. And you have you know a spouse, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, or just a friend who doesn't like them as much, it won't be a problem for them to watch it. You can watch it with them. They'll, they'll have a good time.
0: Do you have any particularly fun or memorable uh, stories from the shoot that you want to share?
2: When we were in Europe, myself, producer Wally Schross, director of photography, Michael Cox, and Wally's wife, Kristen Strauss. We were in Copenhagen, and we had just finished doing an interview there. And Klaus Teuber, the creator of Settlers of Catan, had gifted us one or two games to play while we were on our trip. Well, one of them was called Wacky Wacky West. And it's a great game. It actually won game of the year. And the four of us played it, and it was fun. And then Wally went and did some work, and Mike went and did some work. And I played it two-player, 1v1, with Kristen. And it was one of the most intense games of anything I've ever played in my life. <laughs> and both Wally and Mike were in different rooms. They were like, "We can, it, it's really quiet in there, and we can just hear the tension of this board game in this room. And so the funny thing about this is that I was going to win the game, and I went and reached for the piece that would allow me to win the game. And I was really happy. And then I realized that the piece was not there. I was out of it. And about two turns later, Kristen realized that she won. And, you know, the story will be told well after I am dead because Kristen will outlive me and she will tell it at my funeral. But, you know, they always say board games aren't necessarily about the board games so much as about the people you play them with and the stories that come from that and that was definitely one of the stories that, that came from playing games on the road.
1: Awesome. What are your plans for your sort of next projects from here?
2: Ah, oh, man, I wish that I could talk about more stuff. So, you know, for different reasons, I can't talk about things. Some there's, There are some things in the works. For certain different reasons, I can't talk about things. Some of them are at the very beginning stages. Some of them I just am not allowed to talk about. And some of this is my own personal superstitions of don't talk about stuff. I tell it's like a real thing just because I'm a superstitious
0: guy. Go figure.
2: There are projects in the works. Some of them are board game related, some of them are not board game related. And I hope that most of them come to fruition.
0: And uh, lastly, where can people watch Game
2: Master? In the United States, people can watch Game Master on iTunes, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Voodoo, Vimeo, all of the streaming services. You know, and I believe we're released in the UK as well on iTunes. And if I am not mistaken, in Australia, New Zealand, very, very soon. We have a distributor out there, so it should be available on certain platforms
0: out there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about Game Master. Uh, thank you for having me. All right. Well, on that note, let's go back to our regularly scheduled programming about TV writing news. And uh, the first one that we want to talk about is this New York Times article that was recently published about the All Rise uprising or mutiny in the writers' room on the CBS show All Rise.
1: Yeah. So for those unfamiliar, essentially, this is a unfortunately all too common scenario now, it seems, where... There was a particular showrunner in place. In this instance, it was Greg Spottiswood, who I believe is a Canadian writer, who was running this show, or apparently co-running this show, but was really setting a a pretty toxic work environment for his writers, and uh, especially when it kind of comes to being sensitive to depictions of uh, race and culture and ethnicity in the characters and in the work, and then really not being receptive in any way to the writers on his staff who are from those backgrounds and who were telling him that this is not okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I definitely recommend everyone read both the New York Times article about that, but also the Twitter threads from the different writers who spoke out about uh, this issue. And one of the clear issues here is that regardless of having sort of a, quote unquote, diverse writers room, the key problem is that if you don't have a diverse sort of uh, decision makers, uh, especially showrunners and so forth, you won't have the ability to tell necessarily diverse stories, especially uh, in this example, the room for all rides. It was, I think it was originally seven writers, and two of those writers were white men. Uh, And I'm sure one of the two was obviously the the showrunner. And so, despite having on paper sort of a diverse writer's room, the execution of that writer's room was muddled by the decision makers not listening to the other writers and their experiences. And, you know, that kind of directly translates to where you are on the ladder, because especially this is something we've talked about at nauseum again in the podcast before. But if you are a staff writer or a story editor or even an ESC, see and let's say the showrunner who is also your boss starts to pitch basically racist storylines or things like that, I mean, usually I feel like you would be much less vocal than if you were an EP because you're not really on an equal footing because some of it is about preserving your own opportunity as a writer on that staff. And so you don't want to jeopardize that by speaking out. And so that creates a sort of this culture of let's just go ahead and do whatever the showrunner does or says, because I don't want to lose my job, basically. And so that does perpetuate this idea that actually, you know, regardless of the diversity of the room, the real issue, in my mind, or one of the biggest issues is sort of a top-down issue where we need more diverse decision-makers and shrunners.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree that that's a big issue. The interesting thing about this situation was that there were a number of high-level writers of color in this room, including uh, another executive producer who was meant to be the co-showrunner with Greg Spottiswood, but uh, they really weren't empowering this co-showrunner to make any important decisions. And it seemed like they were using him instead as sort of you know for publicity by having him show up to events to make them look good, but then really not giving him any creative control or power in the room.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I, that is the crux of the issue. Again, I mentioned sort of having diverse decision makers. And to me, that is still the case here where uh, like you said, you had uh, a person of color at the head or one of the people that was supposed to be the co-runner. but ultimately they were not the decision maker. They were not the person that was being heard by the network of the studio. And so it creates this feedback loop where you need to go through the quote- unquote real showrunner to solve those issues to get approval on storylines to get approval on set and so forth. whereas that fight shouldn't be really happening. It should be uh, coexistence or it should be a divide and conquer situation where you handle this and I handle that. And so it's interesting, again, in this case, because on paper, you know, the room, the makeup of the room and the makeup of the executives and so forth is trending towards a diverse makeup. But the reality is that in execution of that makeup, isn't really uh, compatible with sort of the idea that is is trying to portray. So it's really unfortunate. And I, there's no easy solution here because obviously, you know, we say hire from the top down and so forth. But uh, like you said, they hired someone, but they just didn't listen to that person. So part of the issue is really uh, giving agency to the people that should be represented on screen and in the room, as opposed to uh, sort of having a placeholder there and then having another person be the real, quote unquote, showrunner behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that it's, it's a systemic issue. I think that despite the ongoing commitment to diversity at CBS, they are still putting disproportionate amount of white showrunners in place. You know, even as recently as a couple of years ago, every single show on CBS was headed by a white showrunner, often had a white lead in it and that kind of thing too. Apparently even this show, the source material was based off of a white judge. And so they, they decided to cast a woman of color in the role instead to try to kind of balance that out. But fundamentally, I think that really highlights the difference between authentic, meaningful diversity that comes from taking a show idea created by a person of color that embodies that experience or that point of view or whatever and staffing that with people who can speak to that and empowering those people to tell those stories or trying to do this kind of box ticking and, and being performative by taking this very white show with this white showrunner runner and then just trying to make it look better by having people of color involved in the staff and then not actually listening to them or allowing them to have any actual input and i think that's you know the difference you can try to make it look as good as you want but if you're not really uh, committed to diversity and inclusion then it's not going to come through
0: you can be as performative as you want, but if you don't execute on the idea and if you don't empower the people that need to be listened in a genuine way without fear of repercussion, then the solution you know, is always going to be uh, slipping through your hands because you're not actively trying to make a solution. You're just sort of disguising and putting a band-aid on the whole issue at hand. Like you said, it's, it is a systemic issue. I mean, the amount of articles recently uh, that have come out about uh, CBS's sort of internal issues is uh, numerous, uh, to put it uh, lightly. You know, the the whole Peter Lenkoff of it all is also a recent uh, major issue. And so there's no easy solution here as opposed to, I mean, the easiest solution is just empower the people that need to be empowered and put them in the capacity where they can be listened to. And in this case on paper, it was almost like 85% there in theory, but in practice it wasn't there because you had this one or two or however many people that were just curtailing that effort by shutting down any conversation and shutting down any opportunity to have an actual partnership between people as opposed to let me just be the real Seaner here and let me just do my thing
1: and Who cares what you think because you're just here for show. Another solution to this is hiring more executives of color in the CBS structure, especially much higher up people, presidents of the company, you know, big decision makers and that thing. And then I think you're less likely to run into the kind of issues that you have before where uh, a problematic white showrunner is going to be empowered to keep making those decisions and to be suppressing the voices of the people beneath them. So I think just genuinely making the corporate system more diverse and representative as well is going to go some way to, to solving that and then not trying to. Overly pander to, you know, the CBS audience and whatever by watering down everything and not really making it authentic diversity. I think we need to continue to normalize that uh, for people so that we're not pandering. Co-sign.
0: And uh, on that note, let's talk about the other one of the other news uh, speaking of, uh, which was the whole Warner Media uh, shakeup that recently happened with Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Reilly being ousted.
1: Yeah, so uh, they recently put in a new sort of CEO of the entire Warner Media Group, a guy named Jason Killar, who was uh, one of the founders of Hulu and responsible for a lot of their success. And he has essentially kind of come up with a plan to vastly restructure Warner Media, which involves sort of a lot of layoffs and uh, cuts in a lot of places, putting certain things together. And uh, that's kind of led to this huge shakeup and uh, ousting of, of Kevin Riley and Bob Greenblatt and upping of uh, some other folks like Ann Sarnoff and Casey Blois and really kind of restructuring how the entire WarnerMedia system works.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it actually changes. Speaking of, you know, what we were just talking about, how the whole evolution is going to change the makeup of the content on those platforms, especially the OTT, because now that Warner Media is this huge conglomerate, what is that going to look like for, you know, HBO Max and all those different platforms and OTTs, and how are they going to sort of marry all those different pieces of content together? And obviously, we don't really know yet, you know, sort of the outcome of what the new direction is going to look like, if there's actually going to be A push for diversity, a push for anything like that. So it'll be interesting to see how all that tracks.
1: Yeah, I think from the outside perspective, Warner Media Empire certainly seemed like it was fairly scattered and they did have a lot of these different brands and services and platforms like HBO, like HBO Max, DC Universe, all these different things that did seem a little bit disparate and probably could be working together in a little bit more harmony. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how those things are now a little more streamlined and synergized and present a united front uh, to the consumers. The other thing to note about all this restructuring is that, unfortunately, it looks like it's going to result in significant layoffs across Warner Media. Some people are saying as much as 25% of the company in some areas. That's a really unfortunate thing to be happening in the middle of COVID and the pandemic when a lot of people are already struggling for work and perhaps losing the jobs that they've held for a while. So I definitely have a lot of sympathy for the employees there that might be finding themselves out of work now.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's kind of unfortunate how we're really moving towards a whole momentum where every company is emerging into other companies and we're not close to monopolies yet but we're definitely getting to a point where antitrust laws should be enforced on some capacity. I believe recently the whole Paramount ruling was uh, rejected. I mean there's a lot of warring trends happening right now in the entertainment industry on the business side uh, in terms of how sort of you know one blob is swallowing another blob and then all the blobs are going to become one major blob and then we're all just going to be working under one blob.
1: Yeah, I mean that's the issue too and you see stuff like Disney and Fox merging. Got a lot of people whose jobs are the same at each company and so- So they naturally get kind of thrown out when that happens. And yeah, I I hope that there are more companies coming up and providing more opportunities and we don't just end up with one big company running everything at the end of the day. Because like you said, with the Paramount decree being reversed, it's looking more and more like we're just still rolling into the one giant uh, corporation.
0: Well, we'll uh, keep you updated on this uh, very worrying uh, (laughs) news, but hopefully uh, we'll have some uh, better news in the coming uh, weeks and months. Uh, But uh, before we go, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You will get access to our paper patron podcast, cheat sheets, and uh, coming soon, we will also have exclusive updates uh, for upcoming mentorship on Patreon. So you can get all of that at paperteam.co slash Patreon, and we can keep producing a great show like this one for you every week. Yeah, so thanks to our listeners for taking
1: the time to tune in.
0: You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 188. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling.
1: I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If
0: you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions that you want answered on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we're actually off for Labor Day, but we will be back on Monday, September 14th with the last paper tea session of the year. So if you want to get feedback on your teaser, now is your chance. You can send your teaser and perhaps also a summary, a light summary of your pilot at paperteam.co slash teaser to get feedback on air on this very podcast.
1: All right. Well, we'll see you then. See
0: you then.